Hi, and welcome to episode 61 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone, from awardsdaily.com. And this, we are returning to our um, diving back into Oscar's past, and we are, we're in the 2000s now, and we're tackling 2002 when Chicago won Best Picture and uh, narrowly beating The Pianist, which surprised everybody by taking actor, director, and adapted screenplay that night, which were three major awards that most people did not think it was going to win. Actor was the only one that was even sort of being predicted. So we're just going to dive right in, and uh, we'll talk about about the Oscar year. So it's one of those split years, and we've had several readers on the site who've compared 2002 to this year, to this most recent year with um, 12 Years a Slave and Gravity, because it's a similar situation where you have a a really serious, portentous, um, um, important movie like 12 Years a Slave and The Pianist up against a movie that is just a lot of fun, like Gravity and, and Chicago. It's odd though because they it's reversed from what happened this year because the the more serious, more important, better film got best director, whereas this year the more serious film got best picture, but missed mm-hmm. out on best director. That was that's why I I going into this this last this last awards I didn't think it was going to happen because of that. I didn't think that they would. I'm losing my train of thought already, but um, I think you know know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do, because it's what we've always said, that usually it's the more important movie that that, uh, the the director of the more important movie wins best director when there's a split year. But, you know, my my opposing or, or alternate point of view about this is that when in a split year, it's often the director who's who has a more prestigious reputation who wins. And who's better? Who's more well known? And in that case, it, uh, both these years would fit. Quaron and Polanski were both more established, more uh, well known, more uh, prestigious directors. And even though um, Twelve Years a Slave was a more important movie, Steve McQueen is just not to the level yet. I don't think where that people were ready to give him an Oscar. Yeah, it, I, every year seems like it has its own uniqueness to it. Like. Mm-hmm. Um, but last year, this year, I would compare most to, I know we keep arguing about this, but to me, it's really like The Graduate in, in the Heat of the Night, when mm-hmm. if you watch The Graduate, if you go back and you watch all those films for Best Picture, The Graduate really stands out for its innovative directing. I mean, he is just, Mike Nichols is on fire, and he's experimenting, and he's very showy with his shots in that, uh, that famous shot of Mrs. Robinson's leg bent up, and... Um, you know, and Benjamin in the foreground. I mean, that's one of the most iconic shots in, in film history. And there probably isn't a shot like that in in, in, in in the heat of the night, but it was nonetheless incredibly pivotal film because it had one of the first times you had a black character confronting slapping a white character. And so you really did have this kind of pull between these two really significant movies, but one was more significant because it was more showy and artistic, and one was more significant because it was so politically important. And both mm-hmm. were very good films. That's why it reminded me of this year. The Chicago year, since I remember, I was already blogging by then, um, it was a really strange year. It was like the Gladiator year. It was its own kind of weird animal. And the reason was that the pianist really wasn't tracking the same way like this year 
there was this kind of agreed split that was Quaron for director, 12 Years a Slave for picture, and everybody just decided it. And even though it kind of seemed like it was going back and forth, at the end of the day, that was how it fell. And Gravity was picking up steam all the way through. The pianist... The Pianist was coming up from behind. It was it was a late-breaking film, and really people credit the BAFTA with sort of pushing forward the support for The Pianist because it ended up winning really big there. And that was the only indication, the only indication you had that it was going to upset, that it could upset that night. And uh, Rob Marshall had already won the DGA. So we know the DGA calls Best Picture. Well, it's still called Best Picture, it didn't this last year, but it, it called mm-hmm. Best Picture that year. It called Chicago Rob Marshall. Um, most people thought heading into the Oscars that Rob Marshall couldn't lose for Best Director. He couldn't mm-hmm. lose. And that's what was so weird about that year. Like, And that is why it was so hard to predict this year because everybody was saying it was going to be an agreed-upon split. And what we know about splits from the past is that they came as total shocks. Like that night, Roman Polanski winning those three awards – was a huge shock. And we were all just like, oh, my God. We thought that night, we thought, is it going to win Best Picture? Holy crap. Like, nobody saw it coming, that it was going to take those top. You know how the Oscar race is. We get into these ruts where we think that it's going to go this way. And mm-hmm. nobody saw that the pianist was going to take those three awards. It just was nobody had predicted that. I, can't, I don't think you can find one person that predicted it would take all three of those major awards that night. Um, everybody's attention was focused elsewhere. It was a year that started out with Gangs of New York, um, heading into the race with 10 nominations, and this is before Martin Scorsese had won as Best Director. So you had me really championing Martin Scorsese. You had Harvey Weinstein putting up Robert Wise to take out an ad about um, why he thinks that Martin Scorsese should win the Oscar and them getting in a lot of trouble about that, and there was a big scandal around it. And Gangs of New York ended up going home was zero Oscars. And then you had um, The Two Towers. No one was going to pay attention to that. And The Hours was was a very strongly... Isn't it funny? You had Harvey Weinstein and Scott Rudin up against each other <laughs> that year. Mm-hmm. Like, they seemed to be in so many different um, Oscar races. But but when you look at it now and you look at the... You can really see that it was down to those two movies, The Pianist and Chicago. Um, why The Pianist... Why did it pick up those awards? Why did it take Best Director? It's really hard to say except that. I remember people really championing Adrian Brody. I know that I I personally championed him really, really hard, just his performance. And it was the kind of movie that, you know, is the cliched kind of Oscar movie because it's about the Holocaust. You know, it's about one surviving Jew in the Holocaust it was so incredibly moving. It was the antithesis to Chicago, which was seen as total fluff, meaningless fluff. And and the pianist meant something. It was this heavy, meaningful um, film. And we didn't have the internet then. And if we had had it then, I mean, we did have the internet. Yes, we did. But we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have social networking. And so I wonder now, probably the pianist would have gotten the Zero Dark Thirty treatment. It would have been not taken down because of its content, but taken down because of Roman Polanski if we had social networking. It it probably could not win today. Hmm. So it's interesting because it came out in March, March twenty eighth of, of or no wait, actually it uh No, you're right, Craig. It, That's what I was about to say. That's why go ahead. 
it, it was, I think it was released in, it was probably released in December in New York and Los Angeles, but then got its regular re- release on, in March of, of 2003 after it had, I'm not after, sure after, after the Oscars. It was after the right. Oscars, in fact. Right. It, the, the wide release was March 28th, and the Oscars were held on March 23rd that year. Hmm. So I that, that one the pianist was a huge shock to me because I had not even seen it. I'd barely even heard of it. People living in L.A. and New York had heard of it, and people who were um, vote who were voters at the BAFTAs and the and the Academy had seen it on screeners and everything because um, it like as you said, Craig, it, it premiered early enough in December so that everyone who was voting could see it. But the rest of the country had not even had a chance. Any nobody in the country had a chance to see the pianist until after the Oscars because it, they didn't get its wide release until the week after the Oscars. Yeah, and it's worth noting that again, like I had just started in 1999, we weren't really there weren't as many critics awards then as there are now, um, but. It did win some some significant critics' awards, a couple. It won Boston, and it won National Society of Film Critics. So it was definitely kind of out in the ether as people thinking it was a good movie. But it really sort of needed a push. It needed the BAFTA to, to validate it. When it won that, that was a big deal. You know, that was like, wow, oh, my God, all those people really picked, you know, the pianist to win Best picture, and I think that's what what influenced the Oscar voters to kind of change their mind about voting. And I don't think that they ever really wanted to give Rob Marshall the directing Oscar. Yeah. It goes back to what I say. I don't think. Yeah, I don't. I think that that I really do think that people vote when they vote for best picture, they vote for the movie, and when they vote for best director, they vote for the man. And I don't think Rob Marshall at the time was considered substantial enough guy to have to win best director. But everyone knew that Polanski was substantial enough. In fact, they felt like that he was way overdue, and that he was probably this was maybe a career pinnacle achievement for him. That it may he might not ever get another chance to. To make another movie, this that there was this much in play again. He he had had such a great run in the seventies, but then he had sort of a slump in the eighties and nineties. So then he made this. It was a little bit of a comeback movie for him, for Polanski. Yeah, exactly. And it's the kind of movie too where even if you dislike him as a person because of his history, you knowing his personal attachment to the story, you sort of it makes it easier to swallow his 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 personality issues and just mm-hmm. focus on the experience that he had growing up and him channeling that experience into this movie. It, it's almost undeniable. I, I kind of think that if it had come out a little sooner and bigger that it eventually would have knocked Chicago off because it Chicago seems like the kind of movie that you like it but you're almost looking for a reason for a better movie to come along. And if 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 Pianist had had a little bit longer to take track, to, to get some, to get a little bit more traction, it may well have won Best Picture as well. It might have. I don't know. It's hard for me to say because Chicago was the kind of movie where um, there were reports of Academy members dancing in the aisles through the credits. Like it was so <laughs> popular with them, and um, a lot of people, as you see from these ballots the way people vote some of them only vote for best picture some of them don't even bother with the rest of the categories and it's hard for me to imagine the pianist being popular enough with that kind of voter 
to to win Best Picture. I always think that they have it in them to do that, but it just every year you find out they don't really have it in them to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. except they did it this late year with Twelve Years a mm-hmm. Slave. And I and this year more than any other year too has shown us that sometimes it can come down to just a handful of votes between the winner and loser of Best Picture. It might be a ten votes or twenty or fifty or a hundred votes, and the pianist may have been that close. It may have really been that close. And that your headline for the for the preview post for the two thousand two podcast I think says the the year that the pianist almost beat chicago or something like that was your headline but thinking about it later i was thinking that maybe they did it as the kind of the way they did it this year which is strange that they picked 12 years to win but it's sort of like they are in a way like you know picking the movie that they like but but then also um awarding the film that that they think deserves their respect and the way to do that is to just pick director and split it with picture, mm-hmm. you know, and pick the popular movie for picture. You know, Harvey Weinstein was mm-hmm. never going to let Chicago lose Best Picture. It was just never right. going to happen. So I think that he had it in the bag. Um, he's persuasive enough, and it was popular enough with actors. That's the key thing about Chicago is that, again, it's an actor's movie, and that's usually what wins Best Picture is if it's driven by the actors. And that year, again, the SAG Ensemble determined along with the DGA, Best Picture, that's that's a tough combo to beat, you know. It's easy to forget, too, how likable Chicago was at the time because Moulin Rouge, a year or two before, sort of cracked the door open for musicals again after a really long sort of hiatus. But it was a, a, a non-traditional musical. And then along comes Chicago, which feels like an old-fashioned musical in so many ways that I think it just made people happy. And yeah. it's hard to it's hard to fight that. And I think that's was was Argo had that same kind of thing of like it just made you feel good watching it, you know, like I really love Chicago still. Like it's it's one of my favorite movies, um, just outside the Oscar race. And I'm happy that I wasn't that involved back then, personally involved in any of the movies. Um if I had any involvement at all in any movie it would have been Gangs of New York. But um, but it, it doesn't – I don't have that sting of like, oh, Chicago beat a movie that I really liked because the reason was that Chicago is the last film to win Best Picture that has women in the leads for one thing. The last film, and that's how many years ago? Um, a long time. Twelve years. Yeah, 12 years. <laughs> that so, was the thing about rewatching it though that I, I – it felt a little misogynist to me even though it had – strong women and central as central characters and it was about them I, I compare it to Chicago which for me is the goal I'm sorry uh, Cabaret which is the gold standard of modern musicals and obviously it has the same pedigree um, as as uh, uh, Chicago but comparing Sally Bowles to the two characters in Chicago she had a there was a hopefulness and an innocence to her that made it easy to love her and root for her, even though she was flawed and, and, and ambitious and kind of a little bit crazy. In Chicago, all they have is their ambition, and it never that never that never changes. And it kind yeah. of it, it, this last time watching it, it left a little bit of a surprisingly bad taste in my mouth. I understand that, but I also like it that women are afforded the opportunity to have that spectrum of experience and that they don't always have to be the good character you know i like it that they're allowed to just when i watch it and you know i just revel in that i laugh at it you know renee zellweger um catherine zeta jones like they're just so bad you know i love that 
That's absolutely fair. I just, I don't, it doesn't hit me emotionally in the same way. That's no, the no, thing. it doesn't hit me emotionally. No, it's nowhere near Cabaret. I mean, my God, Cabaret is a masterpiece. It's just not even in the same. But, I mean, and it's whatever. I mean, it's hard to say, like, oh, yes, Chicago deserved to win Best Picture. But at the same time, and people criticize it. They say it just wasn't strong enough to win. I, I can't see how, I mean, I can see how it won. Um, I couldn't see how it lo- would lose with with what it had going into the race and uh, with Harvey Weinstein, but as just as a movie on its own, uh, some of the lines in that just cracked me up. And the characters, Queen Latifah. I mean, what mm-hmm. movie today would have a Queen Latifah character that strong in the movie? Like, it just wouldn't happen. We don't make movies like this anymore. You know, with move with women in the leads just commanding every single scene, and totally in charge. Like, you know, yes, you have. You have uh, Richard Gere kind of running the show, but he isn't really running a show because he's, they run circles around him. <laughs> the girls do. It's just, I mean, to me, it's just such a joy to watch. And, and that's the only way I think that women can ever really progress or minorities in, in film is if they're afforded the chance to also play bad characters. My sister Veronica and I had this double act. And my husband Charlie traveled around with us. Now, for the last number in our act, we did these 20 acrobatic tricks in a row. One, two, three, four, five, splits, spread eagles, backflips, flip-flops, one right after the other. So this one night before the show, we're down at the Hotel Cicero. The three of us boozing, having a few laughs. And we run out of ice, so I go out to get some. I come back, open the door, and there's Veronica and Charlie doing number 17 the spread eagle well i was in such a state of shock i completely blacked out i can't remember a thing it wasn't until later when i was washing the blood off my hands i even knew they were dead so excited that Maleficent is coming out I can't wait to see that and that's sort of along those same lines of like I love Renee Zellweger in Chicago I just love her I love the dance she does um in front of the you know the Roxy dance with the with the mirrors and the diamonds and I mean it's just so beautiful beautifully choreographed with all the mirrors and but it's her performance that just you know is to me just fantastic in that scene it just wins me over every time I watch it. And Cell Block Tango is incredible. I mean, it's like, yes, he took a lot from Bob Fosse. He borrowed a lot from Bob Fosse. But that movie sings. Chicago, it sings. It has its own rhythm. And it just, the performers are enjoying themselves so much. And there was such a good rapport between actor and director that it never feels like a drag. It never feels like a bummer. It's just um, these characters just having a really, really good time. I really enjoyed Chicago when I saw it. Um, but I had just come back to America after being gone for about seven years, and so I was really out of the loop with movies and the Oscars. I didn't even know there was such a thing as Oscar sites. I didn't even know that you could find sites about the Oscars or information about the Oscars online. And so I wasn't following the Oscars that closely at all, but I had followed them 
all my life just from what I uh, saw in the newspapers. And so when the nominations came out in January, even though I enjoyed Chicago a lot when I first saw it, I immediately kind of turned against Chicago because three of the movies that I really liked so much were totally overlooked on nominations morning, uh, Far From Heaven and um, what else? Let's see. Uh Ruined to Perdition, and I was trying to think, uh, and I guess maybe, probably also I was really disappointed that Minority Report didn't get more attention. I'm trying, I'm, I I knew that there were two, there were three or three movies that I really was was expecting to see nominated for Best Picture, and when they weren't, then it really made me wonder what was going on with the Oscars, and that's when I really started to search online to see what was going on, and I started to find the Oscar sites. It wasn't, I didn't find, um, Oscar watch until a couple years later, but I found a site called, I think it was called Oscar Igloo or something like that. Do you remember a site of called course, Oscar Igloo? Sure. It, 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 yeah, it just had, it just had a basically a, a rundown of, of awards that movies were winning. It didn't have any editorial content at all that right, I can remember. Right. It was remember basically Oscar. just lists, right? Yeah. Just I think lists that guy of awards. Still, yeah. I think that uh, might be, so, might've been Clayton Davis's first site. No kidding, really? Maybe. I can't remember, but I'll have to find out. But I agree with you. We haven't got to Far From Heaven yet, but I was that was another one I was really emotionally invested in, and it was a heartbreaking year to see it get totally shut out. It's a really, really wonderful film, also with the leading female performance. Julianne Moore is incredible in that movie and uh, deserved to win over Nicole Kidman in The Hours. Wonder what happened there with with Julianne Moore. Do you think that do you think that maybe because she played such a similar character in the hours that that, that those two roles sort of cancel each other out a little bit? No, I think it's it's two things. With 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 Far From Heaven, it was two things. One was she was well, they're homophobes for one thing, mm-hmm. and the second thing is that um, it was too they they saw it too much as a mimic of a of that Douglas Sirk style. And it was, they felt, I felt, thought at the time that the, what their objection to it was, was it was just like the, the whisper campaign about it was that it was a, uh, just a knockoff. A it was knock a derivative off. and a knockoff. Yeah. But that, that 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 just really shows how shallow the viewers can be because there's so much going on to that movie beyond the surface, beneath the surface. And really yeah. it's, it's more, it's more intellectually um, engaging when you think about what what Todd Haynes does with that movie, than almost any other movie that year, mm. any of the, any other movie of the decade, really, is one of the best best directed movies of the decade. I think. Mm. Even on the surface, it's unfair to dismiss it that way because Cirque got dismissed in his day for that. So you're sort of you're sort of punishing another filmmaker a second time for it. It's like if he, if they had lavished Cirque with praise back in the 50s for what he did, that would have been fine. But they didn't. It was only later that people realized that beneath the melodrama that he was up to something more interesting. And Haynes, for me, was he opened my eyes to Cirque. I, don't, I knew who Cirque was, but mm-hmm. I didn't. he wasn't really a thing for me. And I didn't realize, and I was just kind of blown away by what he had done and the way that it worked. And it made me reappraise Cirque. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that even you know, even just on the most surface level like this i don't know how to pronounce it mira miro miro i don't know why but i i just adore it the feeling it gives i know that sounds terribly vague no no actually it confirms something i've always wondered about modern art abstract art what is that but perhaps it's just picking up where religious art left off. 
somehow trying to show you divinity. The modern artist just pairs it down to the basic elements of shape and color. But when you look at that Monroe, you feel it just the same. Wow, that's lovely, Raymond. <laughs> to tell the truth, I've always preferred the work of the masters. Rembrandt, Michelangelo. Would you excuse me a moment? Oh, certainly. Kathleen. Oh, Elle, honey, everything looks just marvelous. Kathy, who on earth is that man? You have this whole place and a clamor. Oh, for heaven's sakes, why? Because of that ridiculous story. Who is he? He's Raymond Deegan, Otis Deegan's son. Your gardener? He passed away and Raymond's taken over his business. Oh, you certainly seem on familiar terms with him. Oh, familiar terms? What does that mean? You know, he happens to have some very interesting views on Miro. Oh, jeepers, look at the time. I have to fly. I'm having the carpets cleaned for what tomorrow. What time are the caterers showing? They said four. I'll come early for moral support. You're done. You remember the conversation we got into last podcast about the auteur theory and everything? That's really when Cirque got his, uh, was resurrected by Caillou de Cinema. They, they devoted an entire issue to Douglas Cirque in, a, in the, in the, like 1960. By that time, Cirque had already left Hollywood in disgust. He was so sick of Hollywood. He had moved to Switzerland and had given up on directing altogether. I think that Fassbender talked him into doing some teaching in Europe, but he had given up on directing altogether. But Caillou de Cinema resurrected Cirque in 1960. And then like two or three years later, when Andrew Saris came out with, um, his book on, uh, American, cinema directions and director, directors and directions, he said, I think the, he, the quote he had about Cirque in that book was, um, time will, re- time will, will um, resurrect Cirque. No, will vindicate. Time will vindicate Douglas Cirque. Uh-huh. And it has. And, you know, we're, we're heading into a couple of different phases in the Oscar race, a couple of major sort of shifts. And one of them is confronting the homophobia in the academy and and todd haynes was a pivotal player in that story and and a lot of that started here with far from heaven getting shut out because at the time it was so well reviewed it was so beautifully made it was so like strong on text that and it was so old-fashioned it was so weepy it was so emotional this movie that everybody expected the Academy to recognize it. And when they didn't, people were just thinking, whoa. I mean, I think it, what, it got nominated for, like, only two awards or something? Um, I have to look and see exactly what it got. But uh, it was not um, it was not as well received, right? So we're in 2002, and when, by the time we get to Brokeback, 2005, it's going to have reached a fever pitch. But... At the same time, um, Focus Features and James Seamus were were starting to make movies that would would land up in the Oscar race, which would promote um, LGBT films. Mm -hmm. And and he did that very subtly and very strongly. And I think it helped to sort of shatter a lot of their prejudices, in my opinion. And also, it was just, uh, when you think about what was going on in America in 2002, in 2004... a lot of people still say that Bush won in 2004 because of the gay marriage um, um, amendment um, on the, on all the ballots. The people that have brought out the the uh, fundamentalist Christians in in who were voting on the to, for those ballot amendments for the to ban gay marriage, and that was in 2004. And things have changed have changed so much in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now it's the opposite. Now now. 
that doesn't have any, that doesn't carry any weight anymore. But in 2002 and 2004, it was really a different country and a different attitude about about gay gay subject matter in, in movies. Hey, good Janice, go upstairs to your rooms now. Now. with someone who wants to be with me. Far From Heaven was nominated for four Oscars. It was nominated for yeah. Best Original Score, Elmer Bernstein, and uh, for Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography, and Julianne Moore for Best Actress. I guess I was annoyed at the time that there was not this kind of myth-making that often goes on with young, upcoming auteurs like, you know, directors that get discovered. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, and Todd Haynes was should have been one of those. When he came onto the scene and he had done the superstar Karen Carpenter story and he made Safe velvet gold line and when he made you know far from heaven and then i'm not there i mean he is just an incredibly uh brilliant uh filmmaker and, and he wrote and directed far from heaven it just seemed like that they would have given him a little more of that kind of reverence that they give these writer directors american writer directors who who hit with such a yeah. Well, should have got, he should have gotten the Soderbergh treatment mm-hmm. for sure. They, they did. Yeah. I think they did give him a nod with the best screenplay nomination. I know, the, but the that, same, mm-hmm. not enough. Not oh, enough. I know it wasn't enough. I agree, it wasn't enough. But I believe that, that they, at the time, that they felt it was enough. Maybe because he didn't have the the filmography built up at the time. Because really, those movies that you mentioned, although they're great, those are not the kind of movies that Academy members are likely to no, have seen. No, they're not. But they, but it builds yeah. up the kind of cred that they usually acknowledge when that person bursts into mm-hmm. into yeah. the kind of mainstream that he did with Farf. And you know that that um, I'm not there. He didn't get a nomination for I'm not there either, and he should have. I know. I remember. I remember the interview would you did with him. It was an amazing yeah. interview. I just think it. I mean, it's. I hate to just throw around, around words, but I just feel like when they myth make, they only myth make for straight white men most of the time. Yeah, you know? and I have to say that may have had something to do with the reason that Rob Marshall didn't win yeah. best, best director. Also, you know, right. 
And Todd Haynes. It's too is- bad because, you know, even if you're a, a, a raging homophobe, the movie almost. The interesting thing about the movie is that it that it tells the story from Julianne Moore's perspective. If it had told the story from Dennis Quaid's perspective, I could understand people being more squirrely about it. But this movie, if you have to go there, it gives you permission to almost make him the bad guy. Oh, um, absolutely! If, yeah. if you need to do that, I mean, if you if you can't see him as a tragic figure, you don't have to, and and you can just see what happens to Julianne Moore and to sympathize with her. So it, it totally gives you an out if you want to be a homophobe about it. There were two stories of oppression in Far From Heaven. There was the interracial mm-hmm. relationship oppression, and there was the gay relationship oppression. Right. And of those two stories, the gay relationship was almost hidden. It was it was almost, you, you barely ever saw anything that Dennis Quaid was involved in. All of his things happened off screen, and when they, they were shown on screen, it was made to look really seedy and tawdry. And as you say, Craig, he he was almost like the villain of the movie because he was the homewrecker. He destroyed her life, and she was she was she was a central character. It was something being done to her. It wasn't about him, about her, right? And so it was really easy to see him as the evil gay guy. You know, I just really hate it when I see these really promising directors not get ushered in um, in by the academy and the industry, and they aren't welcomed with open arms when they should be. And then you just kind of see them give up, you know, trying and and. Uh, it's but just we're glad that 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 Todd Haynes didn't give up, even though he did do what a lot of directors do. What you've said in, in a couple of posts that you've written about how the directors who who don't get um, the respect that they deserve in in uh, the film industry, they go to television. And so Todd Haynes made Mildred Pierce, which was amazing, right. the five-hour Mildred Pierce series, which was incredible. And if it was if it had been a feature film, it would have won all the Oscars, I think. You know, and then next year he's got Carol coming out, right? right. Todd Haynes has Carol coming out with um, Kate Blanchett and yeah, Patricia Highsmith yeah. novel. Mm-hmm, right. Um, that's, that looks great. I, I yeah, mean, with Kate Blanchett and uh, who's the other girl? Oh, Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Yeah, I'd follow him anywhere. I think he's so yeah. brilliant. I, I hope that they can just, you know, get over themselves and, and honor Hopefully him tomorrow, ne- tomorrow, hopefully next year will be his year. To, to finally, I, know, maybe, I wish it were tomorrow. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Let's go. Tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah, you know, he should have been he's so nominated for I'm not there, right? No, no, not nominated. I think Kate Blanchett was the only one nominated. That was really heartbreaking. But they're, they're just so, I mean, you know, the academy. Ugh. But um And he was as you said, the, the new there was a thing the movement that was just beginning that was first being talked about in Sight and Sound magazine that began in, in the, the late nineties and the, at the turn of the millennium called New Queer Cinema. And Todd Haynes was absolute at, at the absolute vanguard of the new queer cinema movement. And I believe that because he was so much associated with just that term that it probably made a lot of Academy members skittish. You know, just the terminology there to be I think that it made them a little bit nervous about him. But but times have changed in the past 15 years, and so I really do think that it, his time has come. Well, so other movies that, that had come out that year that are really worth talking about, Adaptation, believe uh-huh. it or not, with uh, Meryl Streep and Nicolas Cage, fantastic movie. One, I think, supporting actor for Chris Cooper. Really, really funny um, with Susan Orlean, uh, Meryl Streep as Susan Orlean in this kind of strange meta screenplay by, by Charlie Kaufman. Um, Mama Tambien by uh, Carlos and Alfonso Cuaron, which really, really changed cinema. It was, 
And interesting, we got Spike Jones and Quaron both making their first major um, breakthrough movies in 2002, mm-hmm. and then 12 years later, they both have Oscars. Right. And also talk to her, Pedro Almodovar. And, and and when you talk about like them being homophobic, people always point to Pedro Almodovar because he is such an out gay director, you know, and he's always been favorite, favorited by them. Um, so I don't really have an explanation for that. I, I guess I would say Except, he's foreign and maybe that. Mm-hmm, makes I think that's it. I think that he's just foreign. And in the case of Talk to Her, if you didn't know that he was gay, you wouldn't necessarily know from watching Talk to Her because it's so um, obsessed with women. That And a lot of his movies are that way. Yeah. Um, I think if people don't know his biography, they, they could easily not even notice that he's gay in a lot of Can we just cases. say that about gay directors, too, that that's one thing that they're really great at from, from going as far back as George Cukor? Mm. Gay directors really know how to make movies about women. Yeah, for sure. Of course. Of course. Um, also that year, Spirited Away, which I think probably is the greatest animated film of all time, won um, Best Animated. It beat Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron, which I also loved. Um, but it was uh, Hayao Miyazaki, which also he had his last film this year in the Oscar race. So that's a funny kind of coincidence. No, a lot of strange um, parallels with 2002 in this year. Mm. And Bowling for Columbine won Best Documentary, and that is still to this day my favorite Oscar moment when when um, Michael Moore took the stage and said, shame on you, Mr. Bush, shame on you. That was such a great, I thought, such a great Oscar moment because nobody, they booed him off the stage, but he was right. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, on uh, behalf of our producers, Kathleen Glenn, and Michael Donovan from Canada. Um, I'd like to thank the Academy for this. I've invited uh, my fellow documentary nominees on the stage with us. And we would like to... They are here, they are here in solidarity with me because we like nonfiction. We like nonfiction and we live in fictitious times. We live in a time where we have fictitious election results that elects a fictitious president. We, we live in a time where we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons, whether it's the fictition of duct tape or the fictitious of orange alerts. We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. And any time you've got the Pope and the 66 against you, There were some boos. I don't supposedly know if, yeah. liberal Hollywood booing him. Yeah, there were some boos. I think there were a lot of hoots and hollers, too, that it might have been mistaken for boos. I, I, I no, don't know what the sound back. was. But you're right. There were a lot of boos. Yeah. That's you could barely hear what he was saying at a certain point. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing about that's the thing about uh, even if they agreed with him politically, there's a lot of people who just think that the Oscars is no place for politics, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's 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 the perfect opportunity for politics. You know, I, it it um, it, it to, to just want it to be the little party and the popularity contest is is extremely shallow. Yeah, I know, and I loved it that he did that. I just I thought he was just magnificent for doing so he cares so much you know so one thing about michael moore he gets a lot of shit but i can tell you what that guy cares he really does care and that's coming from his heart and it's not just to make money and you know it he really did 
he was invested. And you know what? He was one of the first people to speak out against what really was a fictitious war based on lies mm-hmm. and a horrible, devastating war to, to a whole country and its people and our country and the whole world, really. And um, but Michael Moore. We, we still haven't recovered. The country still hasn't recovered from it. It may, it may take a, another 10 or 20 years before we recover. Yeah, right. Another interesting parallel between 2002 and this year, uh, Stephen Freer's made Dirty Pretty Things, st- starring a Chiwetel Ejiofor. <laughs> <laughs> it was his breakthrough movie. Such a great movie. <laughs> it is. It's an amazing movie. It's fantastic. I was glad uh, to see that uh, Conrad Hall, who who did the cinematography for Road to Perdition, finally got an Oscar, mm. and it was his last film. Mm-hmm. And he died that year. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's uh, so. Yeah, it was. It was uh, far from heaven. It was Road to Perdition. It was Minority Report, and also in America, Jim Sheridan's movie in America. That I was so certain that those movies were going to be to get Best Picture nominee nominations, and when they didn't, it just really. I, I just thought, what the heck is going on with the Oscars? I've been, I've been I've been gone for a few years, and I come back, and it says the Oscars have fallen apart. And so that's when I started looking around, trying to find explanations for what was going on with the Oscars. And that's when I found your site, Sasha. Isn't that funny? That's sort of how you come to it, because what you're really talking about with the Oscar race is you're not really talking about the best of the year. You're talking about this little game that gets played every year by the studios, the publicists, and now the bloggers and the critics, where it's an agreed-upon selection of films that make it through. And and, and they're agreed upon for, for several different reasons, either the good reviews or the box office or the prestige or a particularly aggressive publicist um, or producer. But you see it every year. I mean, I've been doing this 15 years, and I can. T- it's almost like clockwork how it goes. Sometimes there are little surprises here and there, like Beasts of the Southern Wild. I thought was a surprise that didn't really people didn't expect that to do what it did. But for the most part, it's kind of like the fix is in. And I could have told you if you had known me, other than Far From Heaven, that none of those. Although people, I think, were predicting Road to Perdition to get in. It didn't seem like it was Sam Mendes coming off of. American Beauty, and it was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks played kind of a bad guy. It was sort of a dark movie. Mm -hmm. That was the reason people said that it didn't get in was because it was too dark. That's what makes it great, and that's what makes his performance great. It's so subtle and dark. It's just it's unlike anything he's ever done, either before or since. That's right. One of Paul Newman's last great performances also. Oh, yeah. And and Sam Mendes is always at his best when he's – He's a good director, but I sort of feel like they felt like they were it was been there, done that with him. Right. They, they didn't need to celebrate him again, whereas if there had never been an American Beauty, that movie might have been pushed through better. It's too mm-hmm. bad because I I like Run to Perdition so much more. It's my favorite Sam Mendes film. I'm kind of on the fence about most of his other films. I still have a lot of love for American Beauty, even though I've, all the cool kids have turned on it since. Um, but it's Road to Perdition is such a more beautiful, subtle film. At least I'm a cool yeah. kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, yeah, I agree about Road to Perdition. I'd really like to see it again. I was actually, I remember being surprised that that didn't go through. Back then, though, I wasn't as involved in the advocacy um, side of things. I was much more involved in the just trying to see how the race was going to settle in. And, you know, if you watch enough of these things go down and you see Far From Heaven get shut out, you're pretty quickly going to shift your strategy, you know, when you're angry about an angry enough to watch it go down every year the same way. Um, 
Uh, another weird parallel, sorry to, for this year, is, is Alexander Payne had a movie in there because it was about mm-hmm. Schmidt. And about Schmidt is very similar to Nebraska. Like they're kind of part – I call them his three road movies. They're sideways about Schmidt and and Nebraska. And they're all kind of about being on the road and coming of coming of age, coming of middle age, coming of old age. You know, these three movies. And so you saw that that year with uh, About Schmidt. When, funnily enough, it was Jack Nicholson and About Schmidt and Daniel Day-Lewis and Gangs of New York that kept splitting the vote. And everybody didn't know – everybody thought that it was going to be either one of them. And they were both would be winning their second Oscars. So – and only a few of us were like, oh, maybe Adrian Brody's going to squeak in there because they're going to split the vote. But I think even I was predicting like uh, Jack Nicholson to win and not Adrian Brody by the end. So – that was a great night, though, to, to, when when you did have those two surprises when Polanski and Adrian Brody won. That made for a really exciting Oscar night. Yeah. Probably the last really surprising night that we've seen at the Oscars was 2002. And Adrian I, Brody planning one on uh, Halle Berry was one of my favorite all-time yeah. Oscar moments. It really was. I mean, you could write a whole story about that. You could write a whole story about how 2002 was really the end of... You know, um, another shift... I should finish my sentence. Another, the, the 2002 was sort of the end of that Oscars you didn't see coming kind of year. Although you could say Crash and Brokeback was kind of like that too, but in a negative way. But um, things, things in the Oscar race uh, and in the film community really changed when sites became blogs. You know, when I started, we didn't have we didn't have blogs we had websites and so you would just you would just put your content up in html format and pretty soon i mean i remember it cuz i i was there when it happened but but people were doing blogs but they were like on geocities and you know kind of vaguely some people were doing them but but then people started talking about blogs and pretty soon everybody was doing blogs and pretty soon there were bloggers and pretty soon I shifted my site to blogging software and with blogging software and blogs came comments and with comments came interactivity and with interactivity eventually came social networking Facebook and Twitter and so the evolution of that has really changed the way we see and talk about movies and back in 2002 it simply wasn't the case you know it was still traditional reviews being written Um, you didn't have the opportunity to take down Roman Polanski and the pianist because you really didn't have a way. The most you could mm-hmm. do was pick it outside of a theater. You know, right? That's what I started to say. I, I didn't express it very well, but when I found sites like Oscar Igloo in 2002, it was a site where you could find information, but you didn't find opinions. You didn't find arguments. You didn't find opinions right. because that wasn't the content that was being published. All that was being published was just the, the bare, bald facts, just the, just the information that you needed to find. It was yeah. a place to find things. To, it was like a library where you could look things up, but you didn't have, you didn't get, you didn't engage you in conversations, in in discussions, and debates, and <laughs> he was a nice guy, though, Oscar Igloo guy. He, that's sort of representative of, of how what the Oscars were like on the Internet before mm-hmm. things really changed with me and Tom and everybody else, you know. But the early days were, were like that Oscar Igloo type sites, you know. It was all just all upbeat. Everything was upbeat, and it was all about praise. It was nothing yeah. about any. Nobody was was running anything down or undermining right. anything. It was everything. It was all just just a. Pushing things that you loved, right? You know, and that's that yeah. was the the, par- the Oscar paradigm back in the day. That's how sites covered them, and it really wasn't until 
you know, years later that anybody would even look critically at the Oscars. Uh, I miss the days before the internet became a giant dirty asshole. How about you? (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of miss the days before Twitter. I feel like Twitter is really, you know, as great as it is and as fun as it is and as informative as it can sometimes be, it's um, this whole thing with Colbert is so ridiculous. And, you know, you just, you know, having to deal with people so up up close all the time like that, like writing. You know, I think what, what, Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm just saying that that's changed say, everything, you know. I was just going to say, I think the way to make Twitter better on an individual basis is to use that block button more. I think that, that we just have to not be concerned about how many people are following us because I think the best thing to do is just be sure that the people who follow you and the people you interact with are people that you enjoy being around. And you can do that by culling your follow list by just blocking people who are assholes. Mm. That's what I've done, and I, I have a pretty happy experience on Twitter. I, have, I rarely well, get into. I'm, I mean, in terms of the Oscar race, I mean, you mm-hmm. know, the way that the way Zero Dark Thirty happened that that was mm-hmm. all to do with Twitter. I don't know what would have happened right. if if there was no Twitter when that movie had come out. I mean, we're looking at the Pianist. The Pianist is a movie that would never have won any Oscars if Twitter was around. It just wouldn't have. And, and I can't even imagine what other scandals would have been pulled out by these, like the hours, and you know. Some of these will be, you know, just raked over the coals for, for uh, on Twitter. These a lot of these movies. Um, but let's talk about the best actress race. Nicole Kidman won for the hours. I always thought that was a supporting role, and I remember being really horrified that she won. That was a that was a bad year for me because I did not want her to win. I thought Renee Zellweger or Julianne Moore really deserved it over Nicole Kidman, who I thought has been so much better in other movies. She was fine in that, but it was such a small part, and she put on that fake nose, and it just it didn't seem. You know like... the thing about that nose? I don't mind the nose so much, but you know when you look when I when I look at that movie, that nose is a different color. That nose is green or something. It's yeah. not even the same color as the rest of her complexion. I don't ever. I can never understand why they can couldn't make it blend in better. The nose, the shape of the nose, doesn't bother me, but it just is a different color. It's well, strange the way have... it has a greenish tinge to it. There was nothing she could do about her face. Her face is so pretty and perfect. Mm. There's nothing she could do to make herself look what you need to look to win an Oscar, which is you have to ugly yourself up a little bit. You well, know? you have to look like Virginia Woolf a little bit, and people are yeah. kind of familiar with the way that she had that sort of um, aristoc- that patrician, aristocratic right. nose that was not a pretty nose. And people were saying they couldn't recognize Nicole Kidman, and, and now looking back on her career, I do not begrudge her this win at all. You know, She fought hard for it. Mm-hmm. She campaigned like crazy. She really wanted it, and she barely won. And... Um, it was a hard win, and she was really, really excited when she finally did win. And uh, so it's hard to begrudge her that, you know. I'm going to come out and say that I love her, and I loved her. I, well, not so much then, but I, the most I, I watched it about a month and a half ago when we were when I thought we were originally going to do this year. And it, maybe it's maybe it's supporting, maybe it's lead, but she's great. He knows on all, she's fantastic, and I, and I I I think it's easy to. Take a crap on her if people like to do. Just she's just one of those actresses who's achieved a certain level of success, and so people turn on her. And as far as I kind of feel like there's a lot of that going on with the hours. Yeah, as I just far felt as like the it was supporting a goes in the Oscar. hours, really, they're, they're, all of the roles are supporting. 
there's no there's no lead role in, in the hours right you know? right that's right. and so so if they were going to have to choose somebody to to put in lead it might as well be the person who frames the story with the opening yeah. lines you know but who the, has the opening chapter the oscars are so weird like they really are about the popularity at the moment and, and you know she really wouldn't have had another opportunity to get it but she went out hard and hit it hard i mean i compare her performance to julianne moore's or uh, Renee Zellweger, or even Diane Lane in Unfaithful, or Frida, Salma Hayek, and to me it's the weakest of the five of those performances. Mm. It's a good performance. I agree with you, Craig. It's a, it's a sometimes, in, at moments, really shattering and amazing. But she won because she was Nicole Kidman, and it was because it was her time and it was her career Oscar. That's why I say I don't really begrudge her that. But, you know, like with a lot of these wins we see, like, um, that, that, you know, it just doesn't ring right to me like the like uh jennifer lawrence winning for silver linings playbook you know which never felt really right to me that she won that oscar when we talk when we talk about it that it was nicole kidman's time which maybe can be a little bit more specific it maybe was time because a lot of people thought that she deserved it from moulin rouge and so, and so many she still had a lot movies, of the yeah. she still had a lot of the goodwill built up from losing the year that she should have won then yeah. and also she had just broken up she just split up with tom cruise that year right right exactly and, and it was, so that's was, the backstory that it was going reminded on me of, everyone was it reminded me of when Sean Penn won for Mystic River. He was great in it. It wasn't the biggest part. It wasn't his biggest performance by any means, but it was time to finally give him an Oscar. And that's mm-hmm. what I felt like it was with Nicole Kidman. It was just time to finally give her the Oscar, you know, and I'm kind of glad I'm glad that they did because when would she have won it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate for the other people in her category who were more more accurately leading roles, but that's right. not her fault. No, right. and and again, like Sean Penn's Mystic River wasn't really a leading role either, you know. And then when he came back and won for Milk, that was a performance he deserved to win for. You know, that was a really thoroughly he was great in Mystic River, great, but it was really mm-hmm. just that one scene. And um, Nicole Kidman, why shouldn't she be able to win for that if Marlon Brando can win for The Godfather? You know, right. So. Um, I think I'm I'm probably going a little easier on the hours than I normally would have because when I first saw it, I didn't really like it that much. It, there were there was a lot of different things about it that that bugged me. I won't get into them now, but this last time I watched it, it just the whole thing, top to bottom, just killed me. Hmm. I, hate I think it. The, I, I was invested in the hours the same way I was invested in Road to Perdition because I had read the source material first. The novel by Michael Cunningham is amazing. The hours I think believe it might have won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm yeah. pretty sure that it did. And um, also, d- did you know that uh, the the Road to Perdition was a graphic novel before yeah. it was a movie? Yeah, do you know that, Craig? Um, Max Allen Collins, who wrote, who's written about 50 different film noir novels, um, collaborated on a graphic novel. And it was, you know, it's that really made me start to realize that comic books and graphic novels don't have to be about superheroes. And we've seen that this year. With well, the way that, for instance, Darren Aronofsky has his companion graphic novels for The Fountain and for Noah, and that uh, Snowpiercer is another um, example of. It. I just think it's a, it's really interesting that that there are other, that. And what was the movie that a Middle Eastern movie? I one best foreign film, animated film that was a, that was a graphic novel. Oh, starts with a P. Starts with a P. Persopolis. Yeah. Yeah. And movies like that, I believe, I think those are really, I think it's really interesting that those have graphic novel sources. That's, sorry about the tangent, but I just, that was something that was, I, I was really, really 
I really, really loved Rope Perdition even before I saw the movie. And so, as I say, I was just so blown away on when the nominations came out that those movies weren't nominated. It it sort of, the whole year just sort of sort of pulled the rug out from under me emotionally. Well, I didn't know that, that what would become of women in movies would become such a wasteland that I had the luxury of hating the hours when it first came out. Now right. I would never hate that movie. I would be so supportive of it and love it so much and be so grateful that it existed, that a producer would have made that movie. That you know, It's just crazy that, that we just they just don't make movies like that. And for it to be nominated for Best Picture with five nominees, you know, a, a movie that's about women, a story of women, I mean, I would look at that totally differently now. It is time for us to move back to London. I miss London. I miss London life. This is not you speaking, Virginia. This is an aspect of your it illness. It's not is, you. It is my voice. It's not your it's voice. Mine and mine this is alone. the voice that it, you hear. It is not. It is mine. I'm dying in this town. Thinking clearly, Virginia, you'd recall it was London that brought you low. I'm thinking clearly. If I were thinking clearly, we'd brought you to Richmond to give you peace. If I were thinking clearly, Leonard, I would tell you that I wrestle alone in the dark, in the deep dark, and that only I can know, only I can understand my own condition. You live with the threat, you tell me. You live with the threat of my extinction. Leonard, I live with it too. This is my right. It is the right of every human being. I choose not the suffocating anesthetic of the suburbs, but the violent jolt of the capital. That is my choice. The meanest patient is even the very lowest is allowed some say in the matter of her own prescription. Thereby she defines her humanity. I wish for your sake, Leonard, I could be happy in this quietness. But if it is a choice between Richmond and death, I choose death. Very well, London then. We go back to London. And I was really hard on the movie back then. I actually vehemently hated it, but... I, I did too. I hated <laughs> I, I hated Ed Harris in it. I hated the soundtrack. I hated I hated Julian yeah. Moore in it, and I normally like her in everything. Same I, here. I just it just rubbed me the wrong way. It just seemed ridiculous to me, and then some. But for some reason, this last time, it just. I, and I think I would agree. If I watched it again, I think I would feel exactly the same as you because it, partly for me, it's just that they don't make movies like that. Like you look at the roles in, in that actress category, Nicole Kidman in The Hours and um, Diane Lane in Unfaithful, which is a, kind of a um, 
guilty pleasure of mine. I love that movie. Salma Hayek and, and Frida and Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven and Renee Zellweger in Chicago. These are such strong performances, you know, of, of movies that are that are about women. They're not playing a supporting character like Amy Adams in American Hustle. Compare Amer- Amy Adams in American Hustle to any one of these five. It's embarrassing. I'd rather not. It'll just make me mad. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's it's totally embarrassing that that's that that's what Best Actresses come down to. That's the thing is, is history is a weird thing. I, I, I came, I come at this year a little bit differently than Ryan did. I don't think I was disappointed at the time because for me, Oscars were always about disappointment because my favorite movies never were included. So this was no, no different. And, but when I think about just on the surface level, I think about it as Chicago beating other better films. But when you go below best picture, this is actually a really, the, the major awards are all pretty decent. I mean, Adrian Brody for The Pianist, I can't argue with that. Obviously, we've already disagreed on Nicole Kidman for the hours, but I'm happy with her and that. Um, Chris Cooper for Adaptation is great. Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago. Even if you don't like Chicago, you have to tip your hat to Catherine Zeta-Jones. Roman Polanski, Best Director. Uh, Pedro Almodovar for Screenplay. And Ronald Harwood for the other screenplay for The Pianist. And Conrad Hall for cinematography. Those are all really excellent choices. So mm-hmm. even though it seems like a, an off year on one hand, it, when I look more deeply, it's actually a really pretty decent year for me. Yeah, it doesn't look like an off year to me, really. I mean, it, it, it looks like a strong year. One of the last really good, um, really good years with with a lot of you know, a lot of the winners really deserving and very rich diverse choices in the different categories it seems like um, and really spread around too a lot like this year yeah and and special special effects films were special effects films you know they hadn't yet although two towers won visual effects but they hadn't totally infiltrated because they hadn't completely dwarfed uh all the other movies but let's just take a quick look at the box office which is kind of depressing <laughs> two towers number one okay fine harry potter chamber of secrets number two spider-man number three star wars attack of the clones number four men in black two number five die another day number six seven was signs which is strange eight is ice age and then nine is a big shocker my big fat greek wedding which freaked everybody out that it got so high and Minority Report. So we're looking at, you know, really high-grossing, you know, films. We're really full-on into the sequel, into the superhero. Nothing like what you see now, of course. But um, one thing we should mention is that the pianist won the Palme d'Or. Oh, wow. In hmm. Cannes, yeah. So it did start out the year as being one of the... But, but back then, God, Cannes was completely obscure to the oscar race like nobody thought about it at all like it had no but i think what you said about the BAFTAs is really significant because the BAFTAs were held on february 23rd so that's a full month ahead of the oscars yeah. that's a that's a lot of space for people to to consider and not only did it win best picture at the BAFTA, but, it, but polanski won best director at the BAFTA mm-hmm. too and so people really started to look at the, give it a second look then i'm sure yeah. in america and it has the goods it's the kind of movie mm-hmm. that you watch that mm-hmm. and your jaw drops it's amazing. Right. It is one of his best films, and he is an amazing director. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, that was 2002. Next year is the date change, I think. It's right around 2003 when they move the Oscars back a month, and that really changes the Oscar race forever and for all time in a really dramatic way. And as you can see, one of the reasons why this year is so interesting and, and why there was such a big shift is 
nowadays you just don't have that kind of time to have a movie like the pianist rally like that now it, everything happens so fast people vote so fast that that you don't have you can't have a movie like that gaining momentum in the very last few minutes like this one did and it had that mm-hmm. time to do it um, because the Oscars were held in March and this was in February. So that was a long time to ruminate. That's a long time for Chicago to be sitting out there as the front runner. You know what I mean? Right. People start to think about it. They start to ruminate on it and they start to change their minds. That's one of the reasons why I think the date change has always been very detrimental to the Oscar race. That's why I like this year, because I think the, the Olympics pushing the Oscars back another two weeks, it gave people a little more time to think about what was happening and to, and to let the movie sink in. Because a lot of these movies were pretty they, they're pretty thought-provoking. You needed to think about some of these movies and let them sink in. And also you needed time to let the movies that, that could overwhelm you on first viewing, those movies needed a little bit of time to fade, you know, so that people really could see that they maybe weren't all that. Mm. And that's another thing that happens when you have the Oscars too soon is you get that first rush of excitement that you don't have time to, to have to let that, that thrill wear off and see that maybe those movies are, are really all surface. Mm. I'm not going to mention any names. I'm not, cause I'm not, I'm not thinking of any movies in particular, but I do think that that happens sometimes. For instance, like, like with Avatar, you know, everyone was really overwhelmed with Avatar the first week that we saw it. But then a week later, we're thinking, what? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Because it's a movie that, that you can't really ruminate on with without feeling ridiculous when you start thinking about yeah, the plot, right. you know. And I, mm, go ahead. I just wanted I, I, this is this is a total segue to something completely different. If you're if we're not done talking about what we were talking about, I don't want to interrupt. No, no, but no. if we are, I've got a couple of names I want to bring up. Go ahead. Yeah. Two names that aren't anywhere in the Oscar rolls for this year, but it, it, it it's it's this, this has happened before and it's happened again later. It's Michelle Pfeiffer and Leonardo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. two actors who have done great work frequently, who are both obnoxiously beautiful, and I think in both cases that has has kept people from taking them as seriously as they should and neither one of them to this day has an oscar but this year um leo leo was in obviously gangs of new york and he was i thought he was really good Mm. got completely ignored i I sort of understand it because people still weren't ready to take him seriously and i think he's done even better work since then including this year with wolf of wall street but uh, michelle pfeiffer and white oleander should have gotten a supporting nomination i mean i don't know who i would have kicked out to fit her in but it's like how many great movies does this woman have to make before she finally you know wins an award and it 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 just hasn't happened and it feels like it's not going to and it's kind of sad she absolutely should have gotten in for that i'll tell you who they could have dropped julianne moore she didn't need two um nominations that year she had a lead she didn't need to be in for the hours queen latifah was great but she didn't need a supporting uh nomination meryl streep deserved it for adaptation kathy bates deserved it for about schmidt and Catherine zeta jones fantastic but White Oleander is, is, has actually quite a few really good performances. That's another all-female cast. And Robin Wright um, is great in that, too. And so is Renee Zellweger. They all play these kind of wayward mother figures for, for an absolutely fantastic... What's her name, the girl who... Alison Lohman. Oh, she's so great as the daughter. That is one of my favorite movies that I'm going to show Emma now that she's a little bit older um, to, to watch. But Pfeiffer is incredible in that. She's incredible. She was so icy and scary um, 
yeah, they just didn't like her. You know, they they won't pick a, a character that they don't like, and she was too mean, I think. But what a Back shame. To, this is ridiculous. Back to DiCaprio, Craig. Not only did Leonardo DiCaprio have Gangs of New York, but he also had Catch Me If You Can, which I think a lot of people, it was one of those years when Spielberg makes his movie for the money and he makes one for the Oscars, makes one for the art and one for the money. And I think a lot of people were expecting Catch Me If You Can to be the, the Oscar bait movie. And it only ended up with two nominations, I think, one for Christopher Walken and um, John Williams, I think, for score. So it it failed to to meet expectations, but really looking back on it, I really have more respect for Minority Report than I do for Catch Me If You Can. I like Catch Me If You Can, fine, but I think that Minority Report is probably in, it's got to be in my, not only in my top five Spielberg films, but maybe even close to my top six or seven Spielberg films of all time. I think it's really aged well, and I think it really resonates. Its subject matter and its themes and everything seem a lot more important now than they may have seemed at the time about surveillance, about the surveillance state and everything. I like Minority Report a lot, too, but I'm glad you brought up Catch Me If You Can, because that was part of what made me think of Leo in the first place. Just I'm a mm-hmm. fan of people who do two completely different things in the same year. Obviously, Spielberg did it with Minority and Catch Me If You Can, but then Leo did it with Catch Me If You Can and Gangs of New York. And actually, if I had to pick one of those two performances for him, I would have picked Catch Me If You Can. He's perfect in that movie. He just mm-hmm. has the exact right light touch for that movie. And... Um, mm-hmm. He 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 didn't he he still seemed a little too wet behind the ears for Gangs of New York, and that's I think what sort of people stumble on. It's they're they're not they don't want to take him seriously, where they don't have to completely take him seriously. It was one of the last few times that he has made a movie where he lets his charm do the talking. He seems to actor i think i mentioned this before when we were talking about wolf of wall street an actor who shies away from his charm because he wants to be taken seriously and he comes across as being a little bit too uptight he was so at ease and so relaxed and so comfortable and confident and catch me if you can it was just a lot of fun to watch Hmm. we should talk about the 25th hour um spike lee directed it uh it was starring edward norton um it it uh, it's, it actually had a, one of the you know Philip Seymour Hoffman was in it, um, you know poor Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, and it said it didn't get the greatest reviews, um, uh, but it was in the planning stages at the time of this, according to Wikipedia, uh, uh, at the time of the September 11th attacks, and so Spike Lee decided not to ignore the tragedy but integrate it into the story. Roger Ebert added it to his great movies list. Um, on December 16, 2009, A.O. Scott, Richard Roper, and Roger Ebert all put it on their best films of the decades list. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the 20th. I love that movie. I love it so much. I really, And it's one of those movies we were talking about the last, in the last podcast about when Spike Lee makes a movie that is not necessarily about the black experience when he goes outside that envelope and does another movie that should be, you would think which should be a more acceptable to the, to a broader audience in the Academy. He still can't make it for some reason. And it's uh shut out of the Oscars. Yeah. So right. People always he's, say, he's another guy that just can't buy an Oscar and it's, you know, shame on Oscar for that. It's not, it's not his fault. He's, he's been marvelous repeatedly and he just, he can't get that traction because he doesn't, I think a lot of it is because he doesn't, he won't play the game 
the way that it needs to be played by the Ben Afflecks of the world to win their Oscars, he's not going to suck up to anybody mm-hmm. that he doesn't want to, you know, or he, you know, he's not going to say nice things to people he doesn't like. So it makes it difficult for him to, to win, but it's unfortunate that that's the way that it goes. They're never going to forgive him for what he said during the do the right thing era. And also, um, you know, the the weird thing is, is this movie and that other movie he made, Inside Man, um, you know, was really successful. It's it's like they don't they they won't you know they get all you know critics and stuff get all pissed off when it's a black director talking about black stories and they always say oh you know well why can't they just make you know movies about white people or whatever well when they do like you said you guys are both saying just now that it's that it's not that they're not still not recognized like I don't know. I don't think that there is anything Spike Lee is ever going to be able to do to to get. He may someday get an honorary Oscar. Maybe. And, and he might turn it down. Fucking guy, get the fuck out of here! Fuck the Bensonhurst Italians with their pomaded hair, their nylon warm-up suits, their St. Anthony medallions, swinging the Jason Giambi, Louisville Slugger baseball bat, trying to audition for the Supremes. Fuck you, Fuck the Upper East Side wives with their Air Maze scarves and their $50 Balducci artichoke. Overfed faces getting pulled and lifted and stretched all taut and shiny. You're not fooling anybody, sweetheart. Taxi! Fuck the Uptown Brothers. They never pass the ball. They don't want to play defense. They take five steps on every layup to the hoop, and then they want to turn around and blame everything on the white man. Slavery ended 137 years ago. Move the fuck on. Fuck the corrupt cops with their anus-violating plungers and their 41 shots standing behind a blue wall of silence. You betray our trust. Fuck Osama bin Laden on the names of innocent thousands murdered. I pray you spend the rest of eternity with your 72 hours roasting in a jet fuel fire in hell. You towel-headed camel jockeys can kiss my royal Irish ass. I notice how many of what I once thought were evidences of repression. Fuck Jacob Belinsky. Sexual. Fuck my father with his endless grief standing behind that bar, sipping on club soda, selling whiskey to firemen and cheering the Bronx bombers. Let's go, Yankees! Fuck this whole city and everyone in it. Fuck you. You had it all and you threw it away, you dumb fuck! One yeah. other interesting thing about Twenty Fifth Hour, um, these it was a novel first, and the the author of the novel wrote the screenplay, David Benioff, and he wrote the screenplay for Twenty Fifth Hour. He wrote the screenplay for The Kite Runner, which I know you love, Sasha. Yeah. And he's also written thirty different episodes of Game of Thrones. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> thirty no way. episodes of Game of Thrones he's written. So this guy can write. Oh my God! Wow, he's and he's yeah, he's he's with um, he was with that actress, whatever her name was. Um, I forget her name, Mary. Amanda Pete. Amanda yes, Pete. Amanda Pete. Yeah. Yeah. How do you people know all these things? I don't know how <laughs> I know that. I just happen to know it. <laughs> this is the weird thing I know. But we know who's dating everybody. Ask us who's, who's fucking who. We know all that kind of stuff. I am just so out of the loop on that. It's it's kind of weird, you know. Like I'll see on the news some some celebrity releases a sex tape, and I've never even heard of them before. It, I I I. I feel a little spastic, but there were a couple of. What I love too is that David Benioff went to Dartmouth and Todd Haynes went to Brown. These are Ivy League guys. These are smart guys. You know, that's another thing that we you don't see enough of. 
in in the Oscars are these really intellectual people. Oh yeah, I know. Three three movies I want to talk about really quickly. One is both of them were sort of on the Oscar track, and I know that because a publicist on this movie was trying to play me and Chris and all these other people to get these movies into the Oscar race. Right? He was very early adopter of the power of the Oscar blogger. Didn't work, of course, because one movie was The Emperor's Club, which was DOA. And another movie was um, Eight Mile, which was uh, Curtis Hansen, director, starring Eminem. Eminem. Oh, yeah. And wow. that was a really good movie, but uh, and everybody thought it was going to go all the way and get Best Picture. Or not get Best Picture, but at least be nominated. Probably would have been with 10, um, but it, it didn't even get close, uh, it looks like. And then finally, Solaris. Steven Soderbergh's Solaris was this year also, which was really daring um and i think it bombed did it bomb bombed horribly and it has it has the misfortune of offending movie nerds who love tarkovsky <laughs> which nerds. who did the original but it also offends you know uh ordinary people because the movie to them makes no goddamn sense right. so basically there is no audience for that movie except for me it's one of my favorite soderbergh movies and it's one of my favorite george clooney performances it's his most openly emotional performances that he's ever given. He's always an actor who's who's always a little bit reserved and a little bit cool. But in this movie, he, he breaks down and cries. And you just don't see Clooney do that. And it's actually really moving. They really, really, you gotta, you gotta give him a hand for um, for really putting it all out there for that. You know, for taking such a huge risk, both of them. These are the, you know, Ocean's Eleven guys, right? Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're making this movie Solaris, which did freak everybody out. Another movie that year that freaked a lot of people out was Spider, <laughs> directed by David Cronenberg. Loved Spider. Spider, Spider with Rafe Fiennes and Miranda Richardson totally came out in 2002. Nobody knew what to make of that one either. I saw I that movie seen at I, AFI Fest. I, I got tickets to it just because it was Cronenberg. And then um, uh, maybe two minutes before the show started, they ushered in um, Jennifer Jason Lee, who had made Existence with, with Cronenberg, and I guess they were pals. She came to watch this movie. And this is a woman that I'd had a crush on since Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And um, she sat right next to me, and I couldn't enjoy the film. I couldn't oh, no! pay attention to the film. All I could think about was that I was sitting next to Jennifer Jason Lee. And this was when I, I'd been in L.A. maybe three or four years. And, uh, so, and I hadn't run into any celebrities. It was like my big celebrity moment. And I just I had no idea what was happening in the movie. All I could think about was Jennifer. Oh, my God. That's so funny. There's your creepy story of the evening, everybody. (laughs) I actually met her at a party. It was really awful because I went up to her, and I was kind of drunk. And I don't usually go up to celebrities, and I scared the living shit out of her. And she she backed up, and she, like, looked up at me like, oh, my God, are you going to strangle me? I was just like, I just was like, you know, I just want to tell you that I think you're so great. And I just want you to know that there aren't a lot of worlds for women. And I don't know what happened to you and why you're not making more movies, but you're so great. And I really hoped that I see, you know, it was just awful, embarrassing. And she just was like backing slowly away. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Looking for security. I really should not drink when celebrities are present. This is a bad thing. And the, oh, just yes, never, never again, never again. Please don't let me drink ever again in front of a celebrity. The Jason Reitman I, Telluride thing was bad enough. <laughs> but, um, I feel your pain because I did the same thing to poor Benicio del Toro. 
these make great stories of wine and i approach him which and i'm not a guy who approaches people it's just not how i roll but i had a couple in me so i was feeling swaggery and confident so i walk over to talk to him without a game plan i had no idea what i was going to say to him i just open my mouth and cat turds just come flying out of it and i can just read his expression he's like amused and horrified at the same time he's not like worried he's not ready to call security but he just like and he was he was super polite you know he just kind of he, he he couldn't have been nicer about it, but it was so clear that he was just like, wow, who the hell is this person? <laughs> and I just kind of slunk away about three feet tall, feeling like the worst person You ever. know, I know you, and I know it wasn't that bad. Can I just tell you that my Jennifer Jason Leigh thing really was that bad? <laughs> Yours never would be. You always think that it's worse than it is. I promise you, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Nevertheless, the feeling is the same. I know exactly what you're feeling. Um... Okay, you guys, remember Secretary? Secretary was 2002. That movie oh, wow. rocked yeah. my world, I have to say. And, and it rocked a lot of people's worlds. It's weird that it didn't really enter the Oscar race in any way. It was totally separate. But what a great performance by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And what a great performance by James Spader. And, you know, this whole Fifty Shades of Grey nonsense is so ridiculous. People are like, oh, it's so new. And it's not new. They did it in Secretary. Mm-hmm. You know, much better. They much don't better. Much better. adult, uh-huh. kinky, sexy movies like that anymore. And Fifty Shades of Grey is not going to be that. It's going to be crap. It's going to be crap. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really stupid fairy tale nonsense, you know. People would have regarded Secretary probably the way that they regarded shame, right? It is something that was just too kinky to be considered for the Oscars. Yeah, but it's um, so great. Like she's. Oh, like, I know. Right. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. A role model. <laughs> That's the great thing about it is that shame obviously is shame, and but that that's not new. We're, right. we, we've always been shameful about sex, but secretary just goes there and lays it out there and doesn't judge and kind of gets off on it. And it's like, wow, this is sort of invigorating. American movies should do this more often. Yeah, no one had seen anything like it. I, I shudder to think of what would happen today if that movie was released, what the internet would do. But um, But I love how unapologetic she was. I mean, to me, that's the best... BDSM movie that there is that one that that one nine and a half weeks it didn't really it was too torturous you know because the book is torturous you know the the idea behind BDSM is not that it ruins your life it's just that you you know you you have boundaries and you you know you you work within those boundaries but you never go far far enough that it's going to really hurt you you know that's not really the the point of it and that's really secretaries like that it's just this is her kink, you know, and God, there aren't a lot of movies that, that play off of a woman's kink, you know? Um, okay. So punch drunk love. I know really, Craig, I know you love that movie and you made me rephrase that movie. It made me go back and look at it again. I, you know, cause I have an aversion to Adam Sandler is my problem, but right. I am able to <laughs> overlook that now because I mean, it is an amazing movie. Just the, the way Every time he makes another one of his shitty comedies, I think back to Bunch Drunk Club and think of what he's capable of, and it makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, he's making a billion dollars. He's not losing any sleep over it. But, right. you know, with the right director and the right material, he can be excellent. Why? And, you know, most people so, think of it so as the minor. Reason... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You please. Go ahead. Pe- people look at it as minor Paul Thomas Anderson um, because it's not epic in the way all, most of all, all of his other movies are. But that, to me, is what makes it fascinating. It's, it seems like his most personal uh, movie to me. Yeah, there is there is no such thing as minor Paul Thomas Anderson no. as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's really not. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're also much looking forward to um, 
Inherent vice. Inherent vice. Inherent vice. Right. Exactly. I, I almost got. I almost said infernal affairs instead of inherent vice because it's on my mind because infernal affairs came out in 2002 yeah. and that's the basis for the departed. Right. You know that was that yeah, movie that the departed is, is uh, adapted really, from. Really good one. Um, Steven Soderbergh also made Full Frontal that year, so he made Solaris and Full Frontal. That's the only Steven Soderbergh movie that I don't like. I like every other one of his movies a lot, and that one I've never been able to get into. I don't, I don't know think why. I ever actually saw it. I don't even know what it's about, Full Frontal. I can't remember either. It, it was kind of this insidery. It's an insider Hollywood story, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of funny sometimes, but also kind of dramatic, and it's very improvisational, and it just kind of. It never quite came together for me. I, I should watch it again and just see how it plays. Yeah. Um, also, a couple of little movies that, that really didn't make much of a splash anywhere, but I happen to remember them. Whale Rider, Keisha Castle-Hughes. I don't know if you've ever seen Whale Rider, but it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, <clears throat> I think it's John. Did, did, did she did get nominated not, for it? Didn't yeah, she I think get nominated it must have been, that, that must have been the following year, I think, because of release dates or something, because it was right. came out of New Zealand in 2002. Oh, yeah, and then the I following thinking? year is when the little, the little girl was nominated. Yeah, forget it. I'm such a... Yeah, there's another one. No, like that's that okay. Too. Oh, you know, the other one is A City of God. Oh, my God. Came out this year, and then is... I know, that is such a great... One of the great movies of the decade. Oh, for sure. But it gets into the Oscar race the following year because it was so good that they... I think it's one of the few movies that didn't make the eligibility list for foreign film, but then ended up coming back, and and I think it gets like a director... I mean, it got several nominations um, the next... the following year. Uh, Another ever, director, once, once it first, got a proper U.S. release. Mm-hmm. Another director making his first appearance in 2002, who would become an Oscar fixture later on, is Paul Greengrass, who made Bloody Sunday in 2002. Oh, wow. About the, yeah, the Irish uprising thing. Oh, interesting. That was this year, huh? Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. see, isn't it weird how you just see these these male directors just start, and then they're just, they're so promoted, and the, their careers just flourish, you know? Mm. Um. Yeah, that's the way it goes. But it was all in all a really good year for movies. I would fantastic say. year. Yeah. yeah, this is not a bad year at all. This is really. There were several people on the site, on several readers in the in the preview post, who said this is probably the best year since 2014. People look back at the past couple of years and then go all the way back to 2002 to find a year that can match these past couple of years. Yeah, this is a really good one. I mean, the, some of the, there's so many good movies that you can't even fit them all in the Oscar race, you know? Right. Nowhere near. That's uh, the thing, and that's why I shouldn't have been so disappointed when the movies that were nominated were nominated, because it, this would have been a perfect year to have 10 Best Picture nominations. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there's so many good ones. So many good foreign films, too. Foreign mm. language films that were... And, and that's why I wasn't I wasn't disappointed because I wouldn't have expected a lot of these great movies to ever be nominated, you know. Mm-hmm. So it yeah. didn't come as a surprise to me, even though there was a ton of great movies that that were ignored. Another one that we maybe I, I like to mention because I really love it so much. And we talked about um, the talented Mr. Ripley last week, wasn't it? Last week or the week before uh, when the last podcast? God, with, I can't uh, remember. Um, Matt Damon. Whenever the talented Mr. Ripley came out, but there's another Ripley movie called Ripley's Game, starring uh, John Malkovich, that mm. uh, came out in 2002. That's fantastic. It's another one. It's another one of the Ripley series novels. Totally different time of, of Ripley's life when he's an older man, of course, because John Malkovich 
Malkovich is playing him. Totally different story and totally different atmosphere, but it's a fantastic film. Mm. Did it get a theatrical release or did it end up being released on cable? Do you remember? I have only ever saw it on, on DVD. I never, never, never saw it in theaters. For some reason, I seem to recall that it that it, that it bypassed theatrical, but I could be, I, I don't want to talk out of my butt without looking, mm. so let me take that back. But you know the movie, right? You've seen yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, and it could easily. If if it wasn't released theatrically, it was definitely made with that intent, and could easily have been. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you would like it a lot, Sasha. If you haven't seen it, you oh, would yeah. like this movie a lot. That's a lot of. I mean, you could teach a whole class just on two thousand two, watching all these films and different, you know, movements that were starting, different directors that were getting off the ground, and you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that Spirited Away won Best Animated is just so amazing, and and the movie Nowhere in Africa won Best foreign language film i remember that was kind of a sort of a big deal but i'm looking at the movies that won foreign language that year and they weren't really that well known compared to what was happening in in world cinema at the time you know Did that I, was kind of par for the course at the, for the oscars during yeah that stretch, i guess so wasn't it? yeah so this is strange i mean even though that there were some some uh, movies and performances that we would maybe have preferred to see win we're still happy with the people who did win so this is a really rare thing for us too not only was it a really good year for movies in general but it was a pretty good year at the oscars mm. yeah i think so and, and made some good decisions yeah definitely and in keeping with the theory that a famous songwriter can get a song nominated well paul simon had a song for the wild thornberries movie <laughs> it's like the wild thornberries would never be anywhere near the oscars if it wasn't for paul simon oh and and the u2 had funnily enough u2 had an oscar you know song that year too for gangs of new york the hands that build america just oh, like wow. uh, yeah worst part of that movie <laughs> <laughs> but eight mile of course won eminem mm. for lose yourself um, well, I think that'll do it for us, guys. It's kind of a short podcast. It's an hour and a half compared to our usual three-hour deals. But We could um, have talked for another hour about Far From Heaven. I could easily do it. I yeah. mean, one thing I would like to say about Far From Heaven before we go is the, I think the people what like people think that it uh, maybe didn't resonate at the time or was it felt to be um, insignificant, maybe because it was such a melodrama and it harked hark back to the – those sort of weepy 1950s movies with Jane Wyman and movies like that. But it really, those movies that what Cirque was doing, he was, he was, he was being subversive and he was getting social commentary, working social commentary into his movies. And that's the same thing that Tom, that Todd Haynes did. Tom Haynes worked social commentary into melodrama. And that is really the purpose of melodrama. And there's, there are a few directors who've understood that, but I don't think a lot of, Academy of Voters understood it. That was the beauty of his choice to go the melodramatic route because the the story that he's telling is so... If, if you look at it on paper, it, it comes awfully close to being over the top. But melodrama is a canvas that's big enough to contain emotions like that. And, and yet melodrama is for a lot of people code word for chick flick and being the misogynist that they are that's code word for a movie that i don't want to see and i think that i kind of feel like that's as much of a reason why why far for heaven was kicked at the curb as as homophobia is misogyny well yeah it took it took him a while to yeah i think that's a really good point but it took him a while and, and they're still not there yet to acknowledge um oppression in the LGBT mm-hmm. community, as in, to me, Far From Heaven is a movie about Hollywood the same way as 12 Years a Slave is a movie about Hollywood. 
it's a movie about not being able to come out in Hollywood as an actor or not, not, you know, it's, and he was equating that with being a black actor and, you know, about hiding your identity and that continue, you know, they don't, they don't, I don't think Academy voters see it as an important enough cause, which is why it was so easy for them to not award Ian McKellen for gods and monsters. And, you know, why it was so easy for them not to, to give Brokeback Mountain best picture. Mm-hmm. I just feel like they dismiss it as, as, as something that's very important. They see the black struggle as important. You know, they see civil rights as important, but they, they have mm-hmm. yet to see and acknowledge that what a big deal it is for an actor to come out and all. And it's interesting what Todd, Todd Haynes did in Far From Heaven, too, is he, he very uh, um, accurately depicted the fact that that interracial relationships were were about 20 acceptance of interracial relationships were about 20 years ahead of acceptance of gay relationships right. because though that move that's what the movie was promoting in far from heaven it was supposed to make you feel your your emotions and your and mo, your involvement and your investment was in the relationship between julianne moore and 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 um Dennis Haysart, what's his name? Lloyd Raymond. Haysart, right. Mm. And that's where your emotional investment is. And you, you almost like look, look down upon the gay relationship. It's, it's given yeah. short shrift in the movie. But that was what was happening at the time. That was accurate. That was accurately depicting the the um, the mood and the the attitude of the time. Also, something else I was going to say about Farm Heaven. Well, look at how long it took Jodie Foster to come out. And yeah, a lot exactly. of actors probably but another thing, one of the great lines in, in Far From Heaven is when they're at the party and someone says there are no black people in Hartford. And at the party, there are black people serving the white guests at the party. Oh, God. Uh, you know, there are waiters carrying this silver trays around. And somebody says there are no black people in Hartford. Oh, and God. they're right there in the room with them. Oh, Todd Haynes is such a genius. Oh, I hope he gets amazing. his due. How heartbreaking is it when he rides away on the train and she's left at the station just oh, devastated? And to to think about the life that she has to go back to now. Not only has she, has she, in in a sense, in an essence, ruined her reputation in the town with society because now she's not she's considered white trash by the by the black community, and she's something else altogether by the white community. And she's going back to a home that her that where she doesn't have any financial support. Her husband is gone, and he's his prospects for for. Uh, child support or alimony are, are probably nil because his career is over because what the what he's what a mess he's made of his own life and so what does she have to go back to now it's just tragic it's awful hmm. makes me sad just thinking about it I know. such a visionary film mm-hmm. i feel like he's always mm-hmm. been todd haynes has always been way ahead of his time safe is way ahead of its time if safe was around now people would be so like oh my god that movie is my life you know what i mean safe mm-hmm. and uh, I felt like I'm not there was ahead of its time, and I and I feel like uh, Far From Heaven was was way ahead of its time. All those movies could be put into this era, this so, social justice era, and do much better. And I hope that a lot of the young listeners of this podcast seek out Todd Haynes if you haven't yet, because I have a feeling he's going to develop a really strong cult following in the next ten years and become one of the most popular directors. Carol is going to be amazing, I think. And if people, anyone who hasn't, who, who managed to miss Mildred Pierce should definitely seek that out because it's another one of those books. Even the book itself that was written by, who wrote Postman Always Ring Twice? Who's the author? James M. Cain. J- James M. Cain, right. He was known for writing like these film noir thrillers, but he wanted to do something more serious. People, when when Mildred Pierce came out, they were expecting him to do another another 
you know, a murder mystery type of thing. But that's not what he had in mind, and that was his least successful novel. But Todd Haynes to go back and to remake a movie that is a movie that was already considered a classic because it's Joan Crawford, right? Mm-hmm. And the, for the Hollywood adaptation, they did turn it into a murder mystery. They made it into a film noir, but that's not the way that James and Kane wrote it at all. But so it has a lot of those elements in it, but that's not the that's right. not the focus of it. That's and that wasn't that wasn't Kane's purpose either in writing it. But for right. Todd Haynes to go back and to go back to the source material and to and to bring out what the original intent was is just amazing. Um, I just want to take a few minutes here um, at the end of our podcast to recommend some podcasts to our listeners that I really, really have been listening to lately and really digging. And I know if you if you like podcasts, you're going to love these. And so I want to recommend them if that's okay with you guys. Yeah. One is called The Moth Podcast, um, and it's from The Moth Radio Show. And what they are is these the storytellers from all over the world who tell their personal stories, and they're all all true stories. And I listened to one, two today that just made me sob like an idiot because they were so sad. Um, the um, and they were from Australia, and the, 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 the they read them first person, and they're only about two to five minutes long each story, and. They're amazing, each and every one of them. They're really carefully curated, and they're beautifully told. And it's the Moth Radio program, and it's on iTunes. Get that. The other one is uh, Night Vale. If you haven't caught on to Night Vale, you're in for a huge treat. Night Vale is a, a mock radio show that takes place sometime in the future when all kinds of weird stuff is happening, and they never really explain it. They just announce it, welcome to Night Vale. You know, like the plastic or, or the, the rabid dogs you saw running outside your neighborhood were really plastic bags flying through the air, like that kind of thing. Like It's surreal and strange, and it's been going on for a couple of years, I think, and it's got a huge following, and if you haven't listened to Welcome to Night Vale. So that's the other one. And those are the two I wanted to to recommend. Um, There's another show called Criminal, which is by Phoebe Judge, who used to do the story. And it goes into these kind of strange um, uh, crime stories that are all really told in first person and are all really, really good. So those are the three. And, of course, Savage Lovecast, Dan Savage. If you don't listen to that, you've been missing out. You've got to listen to Dan Savage. And the best way to do it is to get his Magnum feed, which costs $19 a year, but you get to listen to twice as much of his show. And I listen to him every week, and he's fantastic. So there you go. I've never, you've, you've recommended that to me for so long, and I've never heard a single episode of it. I've got oh, to God, do that. You'll get addicted. It's so great. He's so great. Although like I, I need know. to hear any more about sex. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how to me I just love listening to him. He's so he's such a he's such an upstart, you know. He just really Mhm. Yeah. So and he he doesn't even care. He's like I don't give a fuck. No, and he's I mean he is totally my role model. I love him. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um but yeah, so those definitely check into those and I'll maybe come back next week with or next time we do this with some more recommendations for you. But I listen to podcasts all the time when I'm gardening and when I'm cooking and walking and all, you know. I need to listen to podcasts just to see how people. Your voice on on podcasts is so great, Sasha. My voice this tonight especially is really raspy, so no. I want to apologize for that. My voice is really weak and raspy Don't tonight. Don't be silly. You guys weekend. both have great voices. Don't be silly. You both have great radio voices. Yeah. I'm having sex with you with my voice right now. 
<laughs> I want to thank, um, I know there's a million podcasts out there for people to listen to, so I want to thank the people who do take the time to listen to ours. I've never actually yeah. done that, um, but it's appreciated. You know, we get feedback on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, and it's just nice to know that there are people out there and who care, whether they agree with us or not. And I know we've been a little inconsistent with, with, with delivery, especially since Oscars uh, uh, wrapped for this season, but thanks for sticking with us. Absolutely. Thank you. And we are really, really happy. And at some point, we're going to have to integrate some kind of a gift for our listeners. Yeah, thanks a lot. And also the thing about not agreeing with us all, not agreeing with us all the time, that's, the, that's one of the great things about having the three of us, because we don't always agree. And so, you know, there's, a listener is probably going to always find one of us who they can agree with. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully all right. Maybe not. That's, it's been lovely chatting with you guys. Yeah. Good night, everybody. You've been listening to episode 61 of Oscar Podcast with Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from Awards Daily and Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Awards Daily. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast 